Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on our show, as we officially head into winter and hopefully some more snowy weather in the Sierra, we bring you the tale of the Donner Party, the version you might not have heard before. You might be familiar with the ghoulish version of this story about a band of people traveling over the Sierra Nevada in covered wagons, trapped in the snow and forced to turn to cannibalism to survive. But behind that Donner Party legend, there's another story. One about racism and prejudice, injustice and murder. The way the story has been shaped and evolved over time, it really shows you where uh, emphasis was placed when it came to human life. This week, we're going to hear exactly what happened when those 81 people were stuck in the mountains back in 1846 and how this disaster came to represent everything California wanted to forget. This story was first featured on KQED's podcast, Bay Curious. Today, we hand the mic over to reporter Carly Severn. The story of the Donner Party has to start with the land they risked everything to reach almost two centuries ago, California. They came to claim this place, but this wasn't empty land. Before European colonization, California was home to an estimated 300,000 indigenous people, from the Washoe tribe of the area around Lake Tahoe to the Ohlone in what is now San Francisco, the wider Bay Area alone was home to many long-standing tribes with incredibly diverse cultures and languages. First, I'd like to introduce uh, myself in our Miwok language. So, Machuxus, Kuchayama, Kaniayase, Dalton Brown. Uh, hello, good day, my name is Dalton Brown. Dalton is a member of the Wilton Rancheria tribe outside Sacramento. His ancestors, the Miwok and Nisanan people of this region, are a part of the Donner Party story that often gets left out. It was their land that settlers were trying to reach. It was a bountiful, bountiful place where communities were free to trade, uh, free to interact. Hundreds of thousands and millions of acres of space to provide for our communities. And, and really, uh, no, no restrictions on, on existence. And into this land traveled people like the Donner Party. White migrants, settlers, who came from the Midwest and walked over these mountains in the 1800s on their way to make new lives here in California. Long before the railroad, before gold even, these settlers made the journey with animals and wagons full of everything they owned. And the California they were traveling to wasn't actually part of the United States then. In 1846, this was Mexico, 
This area was known as Alta California and wouldn't become officially part of the U.S. for another four years. So back then, what made these migrants think they could just pack up, relocate their entire families and everything they owned, and have this land for their own? Greg Palmer is the resident expert at the museum that now stands at the site of the Donner Party horror up in the Sierras. I've been a Donner Party historian since 1992. And he says the answer to why they came is simple. This is the era of manifest destiny. Uh, President James Polk has propagated the idea that it's our divine right and duty to build the country coast to coast after the Louisiana Purchase. The notion that this land was home for the indigenous people who'd lived here for centuries, or that it was legally Mexican territory, none of this concerned these self-styled pioneers. They saw an escape from unfavorable situations in their own homelands and real estate opportunities. There's a lot of disease, cholera, malaria. A lot of people got sick and died. So many people prior to gold were moving west for a more healthful environment. The Donner Party wasn't just one family called Donner. It was a blended bunch of multiple families plus some lone travellers, all bound together on a journey of over 1,000 miles west, joining many other migrants and travelling in one long, snaking party of wheels and livestock along what was called the Oregon Trail, through the grasslands of Illinois, across the desert, and finally over the mountains into California. That year of travel, 1846-47, literally opened the floodgates of people coming to California, and this is still before Gold Rush. But that same season, hundreds of wagons and thousands of people made the trip. There was a Donner family, two brothers, George and Jacob Donner, and their many kids. You might have also heard this called the Donner-Reed Party, and that's because there was a Reed family, James and Margaret Reed and their children. On top of them, you had the Breen family from Ireland, the Graves clan, the Kiesberg family. They'd all either set out together or wound up teaming up on the road together. But the majority of the Donner Party weren't the hard-scrabble travellers you might be conjuring in your mind. In the 1840s, to go overland to California or Oregon, you know, poor people couldn't do it. They couldn't afford it. Aside from the hired hands along for the ride, these families on the trail had money and land already, They just wanted more of it. So if there were a lot of folks making this journey west that year, what made the Donner Party different? Put simply, they were the only travellers on the trail in spring 1846 who collectively decided not to follow the trusted path into California with all of those others, but to take a chance on a new route. They found a guidebook that promised to shave weeks off the journey. But instead of saving time, it added a month to the Donner Party's travels because they had to hack the route themselves. And that terrible guidebook had actually gotten something right when it told travelers they had to leave the Midwest at the right time. Unless you pass over the mountains early in the fall, you are very liable to be detained by impassable mountains of snow until the next spring, or perhaps forever. By the time members of the Donner Party left, they were already three weeks late. 
as the last wagons on the trail, their fate was sealed. And this is the thing about the Donner Party that you might not know. This band of travellers was a mess even before they reached any snow. The extra weeks and miles on their journey meant they were already running out of food, says Greg Palmer. And they lost countless number of cattle and oxen and livestock. The oxen are the engines pulling your wagons. People were dying before they even reached the Sierras. As the Donner Party desperately pulled their wagons over steep rock, 19th century road rage kicked in. And James Reed shot another man dead. For this, Reed was banished, released into the wilderness to make his own way to California without his family, who stayed behind. But this isn't the last we'll be hearing of James Reed in this saga. Reed wasn't the only one to leave the wagon trail. When it became clear that things were already going very wrong, two other men were sent out ahead of the wagons and all those people. Their mission was to get supplies to bring back to the desert, at a place where Sacramento is now called Sutter's Fort, ruled over by a man called John Sutter, a man who you'll hear about in this Donner Party story again and again. If his name's familiar to you, he's the colonizer from Switzerland whose statue in Sacramento was torn down this year. Sutter's Fort, his giant ranch, was his miniature empire, and it represented the kind of opportunity that the Donner Party hoped to find in the California sun. But to the indigenous people whose land he'd claimed, Dalton Brown's own Miwok and Nisanan ancestors, this place held only loss and pain. Indigenous people were resources to be used for the benefit of others. Sutter first courted the local people to work at his fort. And when he met those who wouldn't, he brutally forced them into what a visiting settler called a complete state of slavery. You know, the man burnt down uh, Miwok and Nissanon roundhouses as a way of motivating people to work harder. Um, and, you know, that's the equivalent of burning down somebody's church. When the two men from the Donner Party reached Sutter's Fort, they were given those life-saving supplies to take back to the rest of the party in the desert. And because John Sutter liked to flex his power to white visitors, he also sent two young Miwok men from the fort with them to help take the supplies back to the Donner Party and to stay with them. Their names, given to them when they were converted to Catholicism by the Spanish missionaries, were Luis and Salvador. We don't know much about them or whether they labored by choice at Sutter's Fort. Their story often gets lost in the Donner Party saga. But given what happened to them next, we're going to follow their story. The food Luis and Salvador helped deliver back to the desert from John Sutter saved the Donner Party. And after multiple weeks in the baking heat, this exhausted crew of 81 people finally reached the granite cliffs of the Sierra Nevada. And that's when this band of men, women, and children was attacked by a shockingly early blizzard that kept piling snow as high as 15 feet deep on the ground around them and wouldn't stop. You might have been in a place like Tahoe when bad weather hits, but the snowstorms most of us have seen in our lives are nothing compared to what the Donner Party saw in October 1846. It was snow that literally buried them where they stood. 
and when they realized they could not go any further, they made camp by a lake. Most of them, that is. A quarter of them, including the Donners themselves, remained stuck miles behind. That snow lasted for days, and this is when the real ordeal began. The Donner Party started desperately constructing shelter from the elements. Some had the strength to fashion rough cabins, but in the unbelievable conditions, others managed nothing more than lean-to tents. A couple of sticks laid up against the trunk of a tree and then put buffalo robes and canvas over those. The patriarch of the Breen family, Patrick Breen, started keeping a diary. It's the only first-person account of the Donner Party horror written at the time that's seen the light of day. Snowing fast. Snow higher than the shanty. Must be 13 feet deep. Don't know how to get wood this morning. It's dreadful to look at. A true battle for survival had begun. And all around them, as the days turned to weeks, the freezing snow just kept coming. Provisions getting very scant. People getting weak, living on short allowance of hides. The camps were filled with children of all ages, enduring one of the most traumatic events imaginable. Eliza Donner was the youngest child in the Donner family, and she was only three years old at the time. She survived and eventually wrote a memoir of the terrible isolation up there in the Sierras. Oh, it was painfully quiet some days in those great mountains and lonesome upon the snow. The pines had a whispering homesick murmur, and we children had lost all inclination to play. Inside their makeshift cabins, where families huddled, weakened by hunger to escape the elements, it was dark and increasingly fetid, especially when people started to die. Days at a time, sequestered in the cabins, you can use your imagination and imagine just how gross that was, you know, from sanitary things to a corpse laying in the corner over there. After a month and a half, it became clear that if anyone was going to survive, someone needed to go for help. So in mid-December of 1846, a band of the strongest people in the Donner Party strapped on makeshift snowshoes, said goodbye to their families, and hiked away high onto the peaks above Donner Lake to cross the mountains. With them were Luis and Salvador, the two Miwok men that John Sutter had delivered into this grueling ordeal. And if things at the camps were bad, things out there, fully exposed to the elements, got so much worse very quickly. The first occurrence of the cannibalism didn't happen here. It happened on the snowshoe trek going over the mountains. This small party desperately pressed on with bleeding feet, virtually blinded by the glare of the snow. One by one, they began to die. And because it was way too far to turn back, for the first time, the famished, freezing snowshoe party started to talk about the possibility of sustaining themselves on human flesh. And when a third man died, the remaining survivors finally took that step, stripped his bones for flesh, and began to eat it. 
And here's the thing. You'll often hear people say that as horrible as the cannibalism of the Donner Party was, at least they only ate the flesh of folks who'd already died and never killed anyone for food. But unfortunately, that's not true. And as Dalton Brown of Wilton Rancheria reminds us, it all comes down to who gets to write history. The way the story has been shaped and evolved over time, it really shows you where uh, emphasis was placed when it came to human life. When the Snowshoe Party started to eat their dead, accounts confirm Luis and Salvador were the only ones to refuse, even though they themselves were dying of hunger. And that was culturally taboo and an absolute no. So when they refused and said, no, I, we're not eating that, obviously they became weaker. Seeing their strength waning, that's when one of the men in the Donna party murdered Luis and Salvador with his gun so that the rest of the party could eat their bodies and keep themselves alive. While John Sutter thought he was sending a couple people up there to, to help this party get down, he was, he was sending them up there as, as a sacrifice, with a, whether or not he knew it. And they were treated as no different than any animal the party may have come across. Um, and it, it's just incredible to me to reflect on that and think that that rationale was sound in their mind as a reason to take those two lives. In the 1990s, a historian called Joseph King used records at Mission San Jose, where he believed Luis and Salvador had been converted. From this, he believes that Salvador might have been a Miwok of the Kasumne tribelet, whose birth name was Yuayuan and that he'd have been around 28 years old when he was murdered. King believed Luis might have been an Okahamne Miwok, with the birth name Iimo, and that he was just 19 when he was killed for food. These men's story deserves to be told, and even finding historical records, who these men were, which villages they came from, is, is almost impossible now. They've, they've really almost been erased from history. Having gained food from murder... After over 30 days on the mountain, the survivors of the Snowshoe Party had the strength to finally stagger into the valley below. And the first people they saw, the ones who helped these half-dead survivors, giving them food and shelter, were people from the Miwok village they stumbled into, who had no idea the party they were helping had murdered and eaten two of their own people just days before. And it's something that our, our communities and the state, the, the nation at large, really need to have a reckoning with, how do we tell these stories? Once the survivors made it to John Sutter's fort, news of the disaster spread like wildfire. A rescue had to be mounted, and the people at Sutter's fort began raising the funds in earnest. But at the same time, remember James Reed, the guy who'd shot and killed a man on the trail? Being banished had saved his life. He'd made his way safely to California, knowing his wife and children were running out of food fast. And now he was fundraising for a rescue mission too. A tiny, ragtag rescue party was sent up into the mountains first. But by the time they reached the camps in February 1847, many people there were already dead. And the people they found still living were, by then, basically living under the snow, says Greg Palmer. The cabin stood maybe 10 feet high. So 13, 15 feet of snow, the cabins were buried. What they saw were plumes of smoke coming out of a hole in the snow. 
and their first human contact was a woman crawling up out of a hole in the snow, kind of like coming out of a gopher hole. One of the men in that rescue party remembered how a gaunt, delirious woman asked him, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? These first rescuers could only leave behind a little food before leading those who could walk on a deadly march for days out of the mountains through snowdrifts as high as buildings. And those who were left behind returned despondently to their rotting, dark cabins. Eliza Donner, one of those left, recalled the desperation for food. Any food. The little field mice that had crept into camp were caught then and used to ease the pangs of hunger. Even the bark and the twigs of pine were chewed in the vain effort to soothe the gnawings, which made one cry for bread and meat. And then, in Patrick Breen's diary, comes the first mention of cannibalism at the camp, after the death of a young man named Milt. Friday, February 26, 1847. Mrs. Murphy said here yesterday that she thought she would commence on Milt and eat him. In her memoir, Eliza Donner confirmed that the flesh of the dead was used to sustain the living. Another rescue party wouldn't arrive for two weeks, led by none other than James Reed, who'd finally been able to come retrieve his family. And when she was finally rescued herself, Eliza Donner recalled reaching the safety of the Sacramento Valley five months after she and her family had first been stranded in the Sierra. There, we caught the first breath of springtide, touched the warm, dry earth, and saw green fields far beyond the foot of that cold, cruel mountain range. Behind her, only a handful of the Donna party were now left at the camps, walking skeletons kept barely alive by human flesh. The very last rescuers who made it to the summit in April 1847 found just one last survivor, injured and completely alone up there. And as the last of the Donner party was brought down from the mountains, and as silence settled over Donner Lake once more, California's dark reckoning with this disaster was only just beginning. When the snows of spring finally melted, the horrible things that had stayed buried under feet of snow up here at Donner Lake began to be revealed in full, says Donner Party Museum historian, Greg Palmer. So everything's laying around on the ground. The people in California now know this tragedy has occurred. They are still trying to encourage their cousins and nephews and uncles back in the States to come to California. But now it's a little more challenging because of the tragedy that occurred here. You know, big black headlines, it's lousy PR. And so they wish they could just wipe the slate clean. God, we've got to make this thing go away. The solution for California officials was a band of soldiers who were sent up to Donner Lake on a mission to take care of the mess. A writer called Edwin Bryant went with them, and what he later wrote about that day was stomach-churning. Near the principal lake cabin, I saw two bodies entire, except the abdomens had been cut open and entrails extracted. Their flesh had been either wasted by famine or evaporated by exposure to dry atmosphere and presented the appearance of mummies. 
that military party scraped all the remains they could find from the forest floor and dug a hole in one of the cabins. And then, says Bryant, they set fire to the whole thing. A more appalling spectacle I have never witnessed. These soldiers weren't just performing a physical cleanup job. They were taking a truly shameful part of the state's history and erasing it from sight. This new California demanded it. When the last survivor was rescued from Donna Lake, the California Star newspaper published an account it claimed was based on eyewitness testimony from the rescuers. And what was in it set the stage for the demonization of the Donna Party. A more shocking scene cannot be imagined. It casts the Donna Party as terrifying ghouls, so hooked on the taste of humans that they'd somehow been transformed by it into cannibalistic monsters. So changed had the emigrants become that when the rescuing party arrived with food, some of them cast it aside and seemed to prefer the putrid human flesh that still remained. A lot of what was published in the California Star is undoubtedly sensationalized or just flat out wrong. But this story, published hot on the heels of the disaster, set the tone for how California looked at the Donner Party, and it haunted the survivors for years. In particular, that very last survivor rescued from Donner Lake was reviled for the rest of his life as a cannibal killer on account of being the last man standing. Yet, all the while, another man, the only actual confirmed murderer within the Donner Party, received quite different treatment. This was the man who'd outright murdered those two young Miwok men traveling with the Donner Party, Luis and Salvador, so that the others could eat their bodies. That man was called William Foster. And because of who he'd killed, Foster never faced a reckoning for his crime. As Greg Palmer says, it wasn't even seen as a crime. Uh, William Foster was never charged when they got to California. In the 1840s, it wasn't a crime to kill an Indian. They're only Indians, so that was the mentality of the day. Condemning what Foster did would have meant condemning a mindset that had benefited many people who came to claim California as their own. And more were on the way. In the short term, what happened to the Donner Party scared people. Greg says that for aspiring emigrants contemplating the same trip, it was a cautionary tale. The overland emigrant traffic dropped down to almost zero. There were a couple that made it, but the vast majority didn't because of what happened. Then in January 1848, gold was discovered in California. Those small flakes of gold in a river changed California forever. As Dalton Brown of the Wilton Rancheria tribe reminds us, that was truest of all for his ancestors, the Miwok and Nisenan people who'd made this land their home for centuries. And, and it's just incredible that indigenous people, indigenous to this land, could go from being the ancestral stewards of a place since time immemorial to all of a sudden just being a resource to be used for the 
you know, kind of capitalistic growth and enrichment of an American society that hadn't even been on this continent established as a nation for 100 years. Settlers like the Donner Party wanted this land. And now with gold, everybody else did too. When white migration into California, which had been just a trickle, became a flood. You know, it was a seven, eight-year period of time that saw over 300,000 49ers uh, rushing to this geographic area where I sit now, um, looking to make their, their wealth. Earlier colonizers had already hugely disrupted the lives of California's indigenous residents. But it's believed that in just those first 20 years after gold was discovered, 80% of California's indigenous population was wiped out, not just by disease, but by destruction and murder. Those that survived found themselves displaced and their customs and cultures and very lives irrevocably altered by design. There were insane restrictions put on our tribal communities that were meant to suffocate our life ways, but also to rob our communities and land to make way for these miners and for these folks looking to make their, their riches really at the uh, detriment of our indigenous communities. California had a new self-image, a new way of being. And everything that came before that didn't fit that self-image was treated like dirt in the gold pan, to be discarded in the name of progress. As California bloomed under the gold rush, virtually all of the survivors of the Donner Party quietly, deliberately retreated from view. For almost all of them, what happened up by Donner Lake was something they never wanted to talk about publicly. Among so many families that entered those mountains, just two survived intact. One of those was the Reed family, and of all of the survivors, they probably made the best of it. Something you could chalk up to the fact that the Reed patriarch, James Reed, hadn't actually been trapped in the Sierras like his family was. While he was raising the money to go rescue them, he'd also found some time to do some land deals around San Jose, the place where they then settled into civic life with relative ease. The other survivors scattered more discreetly around Northern California. Petaluma, Sonoma, San Juan Bautista, Tamales Bay. Marysville in Gold Country is actually named after one of the Donner Party survivors who lived there, Mary Murphy. After what happened and what people can do in the very worst of situations, many of them never felt any desire to even speak to other survivors ever again. So there were animosities that weren't forgotten, which is totally natural. <laughs> it took Eliza Donner more than 60 years to be able to write down what really happened to her and the rest of the Donner Party. And years after the disaster, Eliza Donner recalled being taunted by a total stranger. He insisted that the Donner Party was responsible for its own misfortune, and that he himself felt that the miserable wretches brought from starvation were not worth the price it had cost to save them. Perhaps many folks back then just didn't have the kind of emotional vocabulary we might use now to think compassionately about trauma. But maybe this new California, swollen with people and gold and self-regard, 
also didn't want any reminder of early failures. Desperation and degradation, after all, hardly makes for a satisfying origin myth. Especially if a person couldn't quite say with certainty what they'd have done if it had happened to them. Eliza Donner outlived a great many of her fellow Donner Party survivors. She was born before the railroads, but lived to see the First World War and died in 1922, just before her 80th birthday. And 13 years after that, a woman named Isabella Breen died in Hollister, near San Jose, in 1935. She'd been just one year old at Donner Lake. And with her death, the very last of the Donner Party survivors quietly left the earth. We humans like to make meaning from things. The idea that there are lessons to be found within history, even the bad bits, like quartz hiding in Sierra granite. And looking back at the Donner Party, yes, it's sometimes still treated like a pop culture punchline. The cannibalism, the grand plans gone spectacularly awry. But it's also seen by many as a kind of American tragedy. A group of questing pioneers in search of the California dream, cruelly denied, but it couldn't stop some of them prevailing. For Dalton Brown of the Wilton Rancheria tribe, the Donner Party saga tells a very different story about California and this nation as a whole. I think the Donner Party has this kind of this glorification of the American spirit and having to do what needed to be done in order to survive that has become pretty synonymous with the way that America treats itself. Like, there's this idea that, well, if I got to step on a few necks to survive, then I'll do it. For Dalton, the Donner Party's drive to acquire that zeal to stretch out, to grab more, it doesn't just prefigure the gold rush. It's America in a nutshell. I think that, you know, this idea of manifest destiny and and American exceptionalism is that um, there is this God-given and inherently... Um, given right that American citizens have to colonize a place because, in their view, it is making it better. And the Donner Party disaster might kind of show us what happens when such an impulse isn't accompanied by a knowledge of the land you're coming to claim. Knowledge that the indigenous people who already lived here absolutely prized. As 81 people learned in the winter of 1846, this landscape, if you misjudge it, it can consume you whole. That was KQED's Carly Severn with a story that originally aired on the podcast, Bay Curious. It featured a song created by Chairman Jesus Tarango Jr. of Wilton Rancheria and his mother and former chairwoman Mary Tarango. Big thanks to you both and to everyone at Wilton Rancheria who gave advice on this project. Bay Curious and the California Report magazine are productions of KQED Public Media in San Francisco. The senior editor of Bay Curious is Olivia Allen Price, and the California Report senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Rob Spate and Brendan Willard engineered this piece. Our intern is Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Yo, 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 yo,
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.